Numero Trace. This is the third episode of The Hunger Podcast, and today I'm joined by Brad Fitzpatrick. We just wrapped up a week on a secluded ranch in Sonora, Mexico, hunting coos deer. By now, hopefully you've listened to episode two, where I sat down with a super interesting woman named Alice Valenzuela. She shared the history of her ranch, and she gave a pretty solid picture of what it's like on Rancho Mababi. Brad and I got a super intimate look at many of the hidden corners of Mababi while we were there deer hunting, and we discovered exactly why these coos deer are known by hunters as the gray ghost. In this episode, we'll give you a recap of our hunt, everything from our preparations to our gear, our experience crossing the border, and both of our extremely exciting and exhausting multi-day hunts that led us to the animals we've been dreaming about for years. I know we're both pretty exhausted right now after <laughs> being south of the border for yeah. a week straight, yeah. chasing deer from dark to dark. So for us to be able to sit down right now and recap our experience, uh, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, Josh. And yeah, I know exactly what you're feeling. It's been a, it's been a long, hard <laughs> week, but it's, it's exciting to get to talk, talk about it. It was really, really an enjoyable experience. So before we get into our coos deer hunt in Sonora, Mexico, uh, the first thing I'd like to do is just make sure that listeners have uh, an idea of your background. Um, so just kind of talk about how you came up. Um, I know at one point you were teaching high school mm -hmm. and now you're a full-time freelance writer, primarily focusing on hunting stuff and gun stuff. So just uh, for some background, give the, give the audience a little bit of just info about yourself and let's hear where you came from. Okay, well, I grew up like so many people did. I grew up in Southern Ohio and I grew up hunting. Uh, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners did as kids. Went out with my dad, went out with my grandfather. And I grew up on a farm, which was very fortunate. We had a lot of land to hunt. We had a lot of, of game right there. And when I was 10 years old, I decided I wanted to be an outdoor writer. I read everything, every magazine I could get my hands on. And um, at 15, you start thinking about what you want to do for a living. And I told my guidance counselor that I wanted to be an outdoor writer and she told me that wasn't a real job and I need to look for something else. So I'd always been interested in nature and I, I went the route of, uh, I'm gonna, I was a major in biology and I, I taught high school. And while I was in college, I took a creative writing class and the instructor was a freelance writer and uh, actually an outdoor writer. And I, I said, well, how much money you know do you make? And it was like $200 an article or something. And, <laughs> And I thought, you know, I'm in college and I thought, what would I do with that much money? If I had that much, you know, <laughs> college, $200 seems like. Back then, uh, that's like, that's probably 20 cases of beer. Oh, that's, that, that'll get you through a couple months. <laughs> so, um, and it didn't seem like, it seemed like I was going to get to do what I wanted to do and, and get paid for it. And, and I taught high school, then I, went, I started teaching high school and I enjoyed that. And then, then I started writing on the side and uh, it's funny, one day I got offered a hunt and I, I told the man that offered me the hunt, um, it was an industry hunt in, in South Africa. And I said, I, I can't do it. I have a job. And he said, well, quit. So I did. And that was in 2013. And I've been writing full time ever since. Um, and I have been, you know, the, the outdoor writing has given me an opportunity to be all over the world. I've gotten to go to Africa six times, um, hunted on four continents. I've met some amazing people. Uh, and it's just, 
This is a really great industry. I think anybody that, that knows our industry knows that the, the, the hunting and the outdoor industry is just, it's a very tight family. We're all friends. We know each other where we, we're, we're really well connected and, and it's just been a, a great experience. And now I write for several magazines, um, guns and ammo, rifle shooter, handguns, um, gun dog, Peterson's hunting, several others. And I, I, I just, can't believe that somebody pays me to do this. And if I ever find that guidance counselor that told me this wasn't a real job, I'm going to, I'm going to tell her she was wrong. As you just mentioned, it's a, it's a family. Once you get in this, unless you're a, a teetotal a-hole, which fortunately I've found very few people like that. Yes. Um, you really, you find a home and people are willing to help you. And it's just, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship and we're all kind of in this together because I think at the end of the day, anybody who has an appreciation for this or has a respect for what they're doing in this industry, they know that they're, it's, it really is for a greater good, at least as we see it. And that comes in the form of maintaining gun rights and wildlife conservation and all these things that we care so much about, we're so passionate about, and what we focus our work on that we, we, we do this as a team. Right. And it's not just every man for himself. So... It's, it's pretty cool to hear that that's, uh, you know, you, you had a career already and then you just decided to drive, drive toward your passion and it worked out. When it's our job to write and produce content and motivate, inspire, educate people about things related to the outdoors and hunting, naturally you end up getting different opportunities that are, are presented to you where, you know, for somebody like me, when I was flipping burgers for five or six years after college, the idea of being able to even travel out of state to hunt was pretty much unattainable. But then when you get the backing of folks and companies that, you know, want you to use their products and test their products and give them feedback and show the audience what their products are capable of, that's, that's a huge part of it. So I think a lot of people beat around the bush about this and they're not willing to be fully transparent about it. But the reality is we get some awesome opportunities and, as storytellers, we get those opportunities because we can share that with an audience to get people excited about doing these types of things. And for example, the, the coos deer hunt that we just went on in Mexico, you know, I can honestly say that regardless of what I was doing in life, this is one of the hunts that I would have definitely, it was on my bucket list for a long time. Um, yeah. I've heard about coos deer. I've heard about traveling to Mexico to hunt. It's always been something that's super fascinating to me and I've wanted to do. And so regardless of whether I was in this position or not, I'm pretty sure I would have saved up some dough and, and made it a point to get down there. But we were just able to do that with a company that makes firearms, Mossberg, because they're launching a new rifle that we were fortunate to be able to, to help go and kind of do some testing on and provide our feedback while hunting coos deer in one of the most magical places on the planet in the state of Sonora in Mexico on a really amazing ranch called Mababi, Rancho Mababi. So coos deer. Yes. You've been to Africa a bunch of times. You've hunted Plains game. You've hunted Cape Buffalo. Uh, where else have you been? Uh, I've hunted in Italy. I've hunted in Spain, I've hunted in Argentina, um, 
about a dozen states in the U.S., three Canadian provinces. I've, I've, I've hunted several places, but just like you, coos deer was always at the top of the list. And a lot of people I don't think that aren't familiar with the species or the way you hunt them wouldn't understand that. They, they, they think, well, it's just like a whitetail, but it's smaller. So why would I travel to Mexico? Why would I go to the trouble of traveling to Mexico to hunt coos deer? But one of the things I noticed, Josh, in the industry is when you talk to people who have hunted all over the world, if they've hunted coos deer, they tell you about that. <laughs> it's one of their favorite hunts. They all say it's their favorite hunts. And, you know, it's not about the size of the deer, the size of the antlers. It's about the place. It's about the experience. And I think you could agree with me that, you know, we, you talked about Rancho Mababi. It is a beautiful place that neither one of us have probably would have ever seen if we weren't, if we weren't hunters. Exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I try to make that point as much as I possibly can, especially for those who are, are maybe on the fringe who are, are seeing some of the type of content that folks like me and Brad create, whether it be videos or even photos on Instagram or articles in some regional or national magazines. I, I like to convey the point that to me, exploring different places, meeting different people, I feel like there's no better way to do it than through the lens of a hunter. Because as a hunter, the more you become immersed in hunting and being a hunter, you realize that you can see things on such a, such a more granular level and you pay attention to small details and you learn to appreciate things that otherwise, you know, if you weren't a hunter and you weren't out there, forced to spend hours upon hours scanning over landscapes and analyzing different attributes of animals and habits and learning, you know, vegetation and weather conditions and all this stuff, all these things that we are forced to tune into in order to be successful as a hunter, it, it brings you such a deeper connection no matter where you're at. And so like down in Mexico, you know, we're not just talking about when we mention this, it's not just about when you're out there actually pursuing the deer, but it's even in your downtime, mm -hmm. like it kind of, it kind of brings your brain into a level where like you really learn to sit back and look at everything in more detail. You learn to appreciate the small things. And, um, as I've grown as a hunter, I've realized even more that, it enriches your life in a way that you can only experience as a hunter. I would agree with that. I, there are, there are corners of the world that I've, I would never have seen and things I've experienced that I would never have experienced if it weren't for, for hunting, if it weren't, if hunting hadn't taken me to that place. And, you, and even with, with, with saying you never would have seen, well, maybe you would have gone to that place and you would have done something. You, you would have gone there as a, as a tourist, but you would not have been fully immersed in it because right. you wouldn't have had a purpose to be fully immersed in it. And hunting, hunting allows you to do that. Right. And I've, I've like you, I've done things where you travel to a, a national park or you go look at wildlife or you do the, some kind of experience like that. And you're with a lot of other tourists and you go out and you do the tour and you see some animals. I've done that in Africa and it's just, it's a totally different experience than being on the ground with the animals crawling through the thorns, under the sun, in the heat, all day, alone, in the quiet. And the downtime really is, a, is an important thing. Being around the campfire, being 
sharing those stories, sharing the experience, the food, the people, uh, it, the whole experience is so much more about, it, it's such an adventure. It's not just about going and killing an animal. So with this coos deer hunt, um, both of us, it was, it's, it's a bucket list deal. Um, I've been fascinated with the idea of hunting coos deer for as long as I've known about them. I think a lot of that comes down to just growth as a hunter. You know, I grew up hunting whitetails in the Midwest, classic tree stand scenarios. And young, when I was younger, it was just hunting opening weekend and doing some deer drives. And, you know, it was just a, it was, as I, as I've grown older, I've spent more time, but it started out as just one species a couple days a year. And then as I've grown, I've wanted to see more and I've wanted to hunt different species and hunt them under different conditions. And even though I grew up as a whitetail hunter, I wanted to hunt mule deer. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to hunt whitetails out West. And like, I wanted to hunt high country mule deer. And it's just, there's just something about these deer that, you know, it, they're amazing animals and they all kind of share some commonalities, but there's just enough uniqueness about hunting in different places and different species or even just different subgroups that aren't identified as separate species. You know, if you got a whitetail that lives in Illinois in the timber versus a whitetail that's living out in Montana, that's only on Cottonwood Creek bottoms out in open country, they're, they're very different animals, right. but they still share some of the same attributes. So it's kind of cool because like with a coos deer, <clears throat> it really is a, a different, it's a, it's a subspecies, but it's still, it's still a familiar animal to you. You know, yes. it's, it's like you're hunting a, a whitetail, but there's all these other things that go into it. So speaking of that, going into this hunt, like you had heard stories, you had talked to people, you never really know until you're there doing it, but what, what were your expectations and like, what were your preconceived notions about how this was all going to go down? Well, the thing I'd heard from every coos deer hunter that I'd ever talked to was it's all about the optics. This is not this is not a matter of sitting in a stand and waiting on a deer to come in. This is you as a hunter going out and finding a deer. A deer that weighs 100 pounds, that's the same color as this terrain in thousands of acres, and they bed down most of the day, and you are, it's essentially a needle in a haystack. And I knew I had to have really good optics, and I knew I had to have patience. I'd heard that from both people. You have to go sit on a ridge, and you have to pick apart an area completely. And I, I think what we realized when we got down to Ranch Bobby is there are Boone and Crockett bucks all over this ranch. They're everywhere. Your, your odds of shooting a Booner at, on, on Mababi are as good as anywhere in the world. But you're not going to see them unless you work for them. They're not coming out and hanging out. So you really have to – I didn't appreciate how much patience and how much time you had to spend behind your optic – and how difficult they were to see. They're, they're there. There's no question. There are plenty of big, big bucks at my Bobby. But you have to be at the right place at the right time. And you know, because you were there and you hunted it, a buck might stand up and walk after a doe. And it might be a matter of 10 seconds that he's on his feet. And if you don't catch him in the glass, he might not get up again that day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I never... I, I, okay. So I had, I had an idea of what it was going to be like going and hunting these coos deer, but I, I way, I totally underestimated it.
The Hunger Podcast is powered by the Hunt Stand mobile app. If you hunt anything, anywhere, and you haven't been using the Hunt Stand app, you're missing out. From the Canadian wilderness to the Coos Deer country of Sonora, Mexico, Hunt Stand will help you make better decisions about when and where to connect with whatever animal it is you're chasing. Visit huntstand.com slash huntstandmedia to download the HuntStand app and score 10% off HuntStand Pro. Um, so before we actually get into some of the details of the hunt, like you were just drawing us to, um, what were you thinking it was going to be like? When you're preparing for this trip, what was going through your mind? Like what, what type of preparations did you make mentally, physically, and even in terms of like the gear that you were going to bring? Because obviously you're traveling to a different country. It's pretty... It's a pretty long journey to get where we went, and at some point you have to you have to draw a line in the sand and decide what you're going to bring. Sure. And so I know I went through that, but I'd love to hear about like what your process was getting ready in all those regards. Well, it starts like I said with your optics. I knew I'd have good optics, and that was the first thing that that I that I prepared for was to have good optics. But I also knew that this is the type of country where you may you're, you're only shot at a big buck maybe 400 yards so it's it's the rifle the rifle has to be you have to be familiar with the gun you have to know your ballistics you have to know how to shoot a long a long way reasonably within your you know your maximum effective range whatever that is if you can't shoot 500 yards don't shoot 500 yards but you have to know the firearm you have to know what you're capable of you have to and the other thing that i prepared for is i think a lot of people go and they practice on a bench and they say, okay, I can hit a target to 400 yards. Well, there aren't any benches on Mabobby. <laughs> well, sure there are, are, but, you know, it's a, a bench is classified as something like maybe a flat spot uh, on a ridge at 5,000 feet. But, right. Yeah, they're, they're, Not a shooting bench. Yeah, there's no shooting bench on Mabobby or in Coos territory. Yeah, and you're going to lay on rocks, and if you don't pay attention, you're going to lay on a cactus. But <laughs> you have to be... I knew I was going to have to shoot from field positions. I'd have to know my rifle. I'd have to know my optics. Um, and obviously clothing. How, how do you, how do you prepare for that hunt? You, you don't know, you don't know what kind of terrain you're going to be in. You're not, you, you, and we'll get into more of that later, but you have to sort of guess, okay, am I going to be laying on a freezing cold ridge all day? Or is it going to be 75 degrees and sunny <laughs> and I'm going to be hiking all day? And the other thing I, I, I thought about was, well, what am I going to take with me? What am I, I going to have in my pack? What, what things do I need in my pack um, that I would take with me? And I will tell you, I don't know how, how your week was down in Mexico, but mine evolved. My, what was in my pack evolved, <laughs> but just about every day. And the, the difference from day one to, to day five was pretty dramatic. Um, but, you know, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to try to eliminate as many variables as I could before I got down there. Cause you never know what you're going to get into, you know, new country, new game animal. It, it, essentially it's a white tail, but it's not a white tail. I wanted to try to knock out all the things that I could take care of at home that would prepare me to go down there and be more successful. And that was, that was really getting my optics in line, trying to figure out what I was going to take with me every day, what I needed and making sure that I was familiar with my rifle and that I had the right ammo. You keep mentioning how you knew you had to have "quote unquote" good optics. Right. How do you define good optics, and what 
type of optics did you know that you would need for this hunt? Okay, let's start with a rifle scope. I wanted something that was fairly high magnification. I wanted something that would track accurately. And what I mean by that, if, you, if you're not familiar with that, is when you're making adjustments on your rifle, I wasn't doing holdover, I was, I was using a dial. I have to know that if I move that one MOA, that the, the impact of that bullet is gonna move one MOA. And that is really important, that is essential. Um, but another thing that you need besides magnification and a rifle and a scope that tracks accurately is you need to have a mounting system that's going to be solid because these trucks, these, these hunts, you're going to be in trucks, you're going to be in UTVs, you're going to be flying with a rifle. This thing is going to get beaten up and you need to have a mounting system that's going to make sure that that rifle does not lose zero at some point from Ohio to Mexico is a long way. And if, and, and, Baggage handlers, as you know, aren't always really gentle with, with firearms. Um, so I needed to have a, a, an optic that was well, that was secured to the rifle and also one that provided edge to edge clarity, wide field of view, um, a clear image, good, good light management, something that I could see because if that big buck steps out late in the afternoon at, range, at a long range, you need to be able to to get on target and, and, and shoot the deer. Um, the other thing is a spotting scope. Spotting scopes, people have varying opinions of spotting scopes, but it's really the same thing, in my opinion, is, is you, you want your rifle scope. High quality, good glass, good lenses, um, coated, waterproof, fogproof, shockproof, all that, and and good clarity because as you know, when you see a when you see a coos deer, and you may have to make a half mile run over a mountain, you want to make sure that the deer you're going after is is a good deer. So you need to be able to really be able to judge these animals. Rangefinder, I think one of the most important things you can have in a rangefinder is uh, drop compensation, angle compensation, because you're hunting in mountainous country. So a deer that's seven degrees at a seven degree angle below you, the, the actual range is not going to be your, the range you're going to want to use in your rifle. That's going to change a little bit. Obviously you want a, a range finder that's accurate and goes out a good distance. Some, some range finders are truly set up for bow hunters and they're not going to hit a deer size target at a long distance, but you need to know that your range finder is going to be able to identify an animal at long range. And then of course, binoculars, you know, there are different schools of thought on this. I took a pair of 10 power binoculars. They were great for scanning. That's what I used back home. Um, most of the guys had 15 powers just because it's big country. And also, um, you know, with the evolution of technology and optics, I'm finding more and more guides are using range finding binoculars because you're able to knock out two things at once. You know, with a range finding binocular, not only can you find the animal initially, but you can grab a range with the press of a button without having to switch instruments and relocate an animal. And a lot of times, you know, if you're dealing with like a 10 to 15 power binocular, there's a big difference between looking through that and then looking through like a three to six power range finder that has a lot smaller sure. field of view. So I love range finding binoculars. Um, I've used, I've used everything. I've used range finding binoculars. I've used 
binos with a separate range finder and a rifle scope. I've used systems that sync together. It, it's, it's all a matter of personal preference, but the most important thing is being confident in your tools. Because yep. if you're out there, when you have split second opportunities, which a lot of these types of situations, that's what it is, especially with these coos deer. I mean, as we've seen, they vaporize almost into thin air. You got seconds. And so every single second counts. And so you have to be comfortable and confident with your system to the degree that you're never going to, there's no room for second guessing what's going on. And so I guess that's the most important thing to get across. Um, everybody has their different personal preferences and everybody has different budgets, but just make sure that you're getting the best possible optics that you can for your budget. And then most importantly, you could have the best stuff on the planet. You could have the best glass. You could have a, a $10,000 optics package between everything that you're using. If you don't know how to use it right. the right way, sure, you're going to fail. Yeah. And I found that to be interesting working with, a, you know, the cool part about hunting with guides and outfitters is these guys do this as a job. So like they're, they're racking up so much more experience and they're seeing things and being presented with different situations. So like there's no arguing with what these, what their skill level is. And what I found with these guys is um, sometimes they'll have some pretty beat up shit. Yeah. They'll have, they'll have stuff that, you know, you might go out there with the newest, best stuff and they're still schooling you. They're finding the game before you, they're ranging them before you, they're coming up with proper shot setups before you. It's all, it's all about spending time. So, you know, you may only go on a one bucket list hunt every five or 10 years, but if you're doing that, you owe it to yourself to spend the time to practice and like, Brad said earlier, sitting down at a bench and sighting in your rifle isn't going to freaking cut it. Looking out your window through your binocular while you're sitting at home isn't going to cut it. Like you need to get out there and use that stuff and test it and try to push it as hard as you can under different circumstances because the more proficient you are with your tools, the higher odds you are of, of harvesting that animal when it comes down to it. The other thing you mentioned is the apparel conundrum, which we all face on every hunt, no matter what the season is. And I can tell you that I almost failed. I was able to make it work, but for this hunt, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm from Minnesota. So it's right now it's probably about zero to 10 degrees at home. And I'm like, oh, I'm going down to Mexico in January. This is going to be sweet. Like I'm going to be able to go down there, soak up the sun. Like, I didn't have unrealistic expectations. I knew that it might have a little bit of chill in the air, but man, it got a hell of a lot colder than I thought it would. And we even got hit with snow one day. Yeah. You were out the same morning I was where you're, <laughs> you're sitting there glassing and there's ice pellets are hitting you in the eyes. It's that was, that was unexpected. And, and I would say the exact same thing. I thought Mexico, it'll be warm. It'll be fine. I won't need to really worry about clothing, but you, you don't realize that Mexico has some very high elevation and, it, you get a little bit of wind, it's very challenging down out there. So that's one thing I totally was unprepared for. When we, when we get, when we got down to the point where we could actually see, you know, on the far horizon, the mountains that we were going to be hunting on or, you know, hunting on kind of the front range of them, 
Honestly, I couldn't believe there was snow on the peaks. I couldn't either. I was not prepared for that. I mean, I didn't know if I was looking at just some rock outcroppings that were a little bit more white in color, but no, it was sure as shit. It was snow yep. out there. So, I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, you, the best thing you can do is pack for both of the extremes for heat and for cold. The best way to do that is through a, a layering system. And you know, you don't need to pay a crazy amount of money for gear that'll get you through just about any hunt. But even if you, even if you're not going to bring a, a parka or something like that, if you bring a layering system, you don't need a whole lot to get by at least. You might not be perfectly comfortable, but like we mentioned earlier, you know, you got to draw a line in the sand somewhere. You know, if you're going to freaking Alaska or if you're going to somewhere to, you know, hunt muskox or something right. out, in the, out in the blazing cold, of course you know what you're going to bring. Um, if you're going to go down and hunt turkeys in the Yucatan, you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to bring. But... A layering system, even if you're not perfectly comfortable the whole time, it's probably going to get you through. And right. so if I have any advice to offer, it's get some high quality layers and that base layer is especially important. Um, it's got to be moisture wicking. It's got to dry out quickly. And then you can just kind of work up from there. Um, there's a lot of different great materials out there nowadays. I'm a huge fan of the the Primaloft or Primaloft insulation, I think it's some of the best stuff on the planet. Super efficient, lightweight, but you got merino wool, you got all these different things that, that'll work great. But if you have layers that you can add and subtract as you go, keep them in your pack, keep them at camp, whatever, as long as you have them with you, you're probably going to be in a pretty good spot. Yeah, and I think, I think the old method of base layer, mid layer, outer layer makes sense. But you really hit the nail on the head when you said lightweight. You need something that's very lightweight because it might be a cold morning and you might have to suddenly go on the move and hike and there are thorns, there are, every, <laughs> everything down there has thorns. It's trying to grab you. And if you're dressed in a really, really heavy layer of clothing, not, not only are you dragging it up the mountain and you're probably going to be hot and you're probably going to have to ditch it, but you're carrying extra weight. It's harder to maneuver. So I think a, a light, a lighter base layer a mid layer and an outer layer makes sense. And you're going to want something that's windproof. I think that we both found that, that, that the wind can get pretty wicked down there. And uh, you need to think about, about dealing with wind and wind can really chill you and cut you to the bone and make a hunt really miserable really quickly. If you don't have the right stuff to protect you from that. Yeah. There for me, and I, I've run into a lot of people who agree with this, man, I would, I would almost take pouring rain over heavy wind most days, most days of the week, uh, wind is just miserable. You can't hear it tears up your skin. It hurts your eyes. It cuts the cold through you. Uh, wind is just, it's just nasty. The only thing wind is good for is stalking because you have a little bit of cover from the wind noise. But at the same time, when there's wind, that's that obnoxious. Most of the animals are hunkered down, so they're hard to find. So right. even then it's uh, stalking can be a, a tall order. Um, so we've talked about optics. We've talked about being comfortable with, with your, your system, both for optics and having the right types of clothing so that you can get through. Um, we're not going to go super deep into guns and ammo. Um, find a rifle you're comfortable with 
in a caliber that you're comfortable with, that you can shoot well with a cartridge that has some proven reliability, odds are you're going to be able to get by as long as you're comfortable with shooting whatever whatever it is you choose. In this case, both Brad and I were shooting Mossbergs. He was shooting a Mossberg Patriot Predator, and I was shooting a newer version of a Mossberg that's based off the Patriot Predator barreled action, but it has some modifications to make it a little bit more comfortable and equipped for long range shooting. But I've killed a bunch of animals with the Patriot Predator. Um, it's, a, it's a great rifle, especially for the price. Oh, I would agree, yeah. The one I had shot extremely well. It's light, durable, didn't have any function issues. Well laid out. It's a really great hunting rifle for the price. It's it's exceptional. I mean, we're talking about a, a rifle that's in the, the $400 price range. Um, I have shot a ton of different big game animals with the Patriot Predator under a variety of circumstances, different distances and whatnot. And it, 10 years ago, a $400 rifle shooting sub-MOA was virtually unheard of. But manufacturing has gotten good enough now where it's allowing people to get into the game and go on something like a coos deer hunt and hey you know you might be able to go two three four or five years sooner than you thought you could mm -hmm. because you don't have to buy a a thousand or two thousand dollar rifle the money you're putting you're, the money you're saving in your equipment now because of the advances in technology you can put toward the cost of the hunt and actually get in there so um you know, everybody has their different preferences in rifles, but all I can say is I've I've shot a bunch of different stuff with these Mossberg Patriot rifles, and especially the the Predator that Brad was shooting, and uh, I'm I, I can't say enough about it. I'm I'm really happy with that platform. Uh, you're looking at a 22 inch barrel. It's got a it's got a thread protector on the end. So it's a threaded barrel. You can put a suppressor, a, a flash hider, or a muzzle brake on the end really easy to do and even I mean I've been shooting a lot of 6.5 Creedmoor and I know there's going to be a lot of contentious debate about barrel length but man I don't feel like I've lost anything with a 22 inch barrel in this particular rifle. No the, the velocities from the 130 grain bullet I was shooting were 28-25 uh, it's inconsistent 6.5 Creedmoor rifles tend to shoot fairly accurately, and part of that, I think, is due to the fact that people can shoot them well, but it, you don't have to necessarily have a sub-MOA rifle, but that extra confidence really helps you, really builds, it really makes you feel better about taking a shot, and yeah, I found the same thing I've hunted with the Mossberg Patriot line for a number of years, and they've really done a good job with this gun, and I, and the consumers are starting to pick up on that too. I know that they're selling a lot of guns and, and it's gaining a really solid reputation. And we saw it down in Mexico. We saw that this, this rifle is capable of, of doing, uh, of shooting far better than its price point. It, it's, it's a really good gun. And I've, I've killed a lot of game with a, a predator in six, five Creedmoor and it's a really good setup. So we, we covered the rifle and both Brad and I, just happened to be shooting the most recent bullet from Federal, and they're calling it Terminal Terminal Ascent. Um, it's a bullet, but it's also a loaded cartridge. 
Um, they're going to be offering it in their factory line and in their custom shop line with some different variations that you won't be able to find in just the standard factory ammunition. But this terminal ascent, uh, it's pretty bold, but Federal is touting it as the best hunting bullet they've ever made in the history of the company. We're talking about the largest ammunition company in the entire world. So, I mean, hey, I know some companies, sometimes they got to pull out some stops to, to hit the marketing hard and desperate times call for desperate measures. But I'm pretty sure that Federal didn't take it lightly when they touted this as the best hunting bullet that they've ever made. Right. And there's no question the terminal ascent has a long history. It's DNA traces back to, to bullets like the trophy bonded bear claw. It's a durable bullet, but it, it's got a polymer tip. But the thing I really like about it, it has a relatively high BC, but it will, it will open effectively at a wide range of velocities and a wide range of distances. So if you, if you get a shot at an animal close, it's going to work. If you get a shot at an animal at long distance, it's going to work. Probably it's, you know, it's, it's a very, very versatile hunting bullet. It, and I, I, you can see when you shoot these bullets that it is, the, the family tree traces back to some of the, the greatest bullets of years gone by. And the technology is, is just continually improving. And with the bond of construction, you can shoot light game. Like we were shooting coos deer, you can shoot heavier game and you can trust that your bullet at a wide range of velocities and, and varying distances is going to perform well. And, I, I think the thing that impresses me about Terminal Ascent is no Federal hasn't overlooked any element in the design of this cartridge, from the nickel-plated case to the primer to the to the the propellants. The bullet itself is exceptional. This is a really great all-around hunting bullet, and we all we saw that in Mexico in in relatively tough conditions. But I wouldn't hesitate to to use this on bigger game like elk or something like that too. I'm sure we're definitely going to end up getting into more uh, nitty-gritty stuff about the terminal ascent bullet at some point and a variety of other bullets and cartridges from various manufacturers here on the Hunger Podcast. But let's talk about that bullet and what we did with it. Um, okay. So Brad and I met up at the Tucson airport. We met up with Ted Jaycox, Tall Tine Outfitters. Ted has been guiding coos deer and Gould's wild turkey hunts in the state of Sonora in old Mexico for what? Did he say 10 plus years now? I think it's been about 10 years. So Ted Jaycox, um, he's been an outfitter for a long time. He's been in this Mexico game for a long time. He also does guided hunts down in Florida. He's got connections down in the Yucatan Peninsula of southern Mexico. He does a huge whitetail operation in Kansas for trophy whitetail hunts. The dude is is tuned into hunting 24-7, 365. And when you're going to make a decision to cross the border southbound and go hunt something down in Mexico, um, obviously there's a, there are a lot of uh, questions that come up. And I know Brad experienced it leading into this hunt. He would tell people that he was going to go hunting in Mexico, and what was their first reaction? They all said, "You're you're crazy. You're you're going to get kidnapped. Something's going to happen." Because they'd heard the same news I had, and it was all this terrifying news about how dangerous Mexico was, and and everyone thought it was crazy. And and I know that there are people who have have turned down hunts in Mexico who haven't been interested in going down because they're afraid 
to cross the border and what's going to happen, what they do. And that's not to say that something can't go wrong. There are certainly issues. There are issues that you can run into in every country. I've seen it all over the world. But if you have an outfitter like Ted Jaycox, he eliminates a lot of that for you. He makes this safe. Listen, Ted's going down there twice a year. He's been doing it for 10 years. He's not going to take, he's not going to go and he's not going to take clients into a war zone. So he has figured the system out. He, he, knows what to do at the border, how to get all your paperwork processed and things like that. And the minute I saw Ted start interacting at the border, I knew this is going to be fine. And that's, that's so important because, you know, for somebody who is, is doing a hunt like this for the first time, the anxiety is going to build and all the influence from the people around you and the mass media and a lot of the, frankly, sensationalism that, that goes down regarding the tensions at the border, quote unquote, um, you know, every second that you're going through the process, you're going to be, you're going to be analyzing it in great detail and you're going to be on edge perhaps, or, you know, maybe you're, you're a little bit more calm about it. It depends on the type of person that you are, but yeah, the bottom line is if, if you're going to go cross the border, you're going to want to do it with confidence and you're going to want to do it with somebody you trust who has a proven track record. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who go down to Mexico and hunt coos deer DIY. I know there are people who do that, but I have a, a feeling that a lot of those folks started out by going through an outfitter so they can learn the ropes. So even if you're one of those folks who is just like, oh, I only want to do it myself. Well, you know, just the paperwork alone is reason enough to work with somebody who has gone through the process before, because you're going to run into a lot of different nuances with it that until you do it for the first time, you're not going to know exactly what you might stumble into. You might, you might think you have everything all planned out, but there are just little quirks that go into it. You know, maybe tossing somebody a $5 bill at the right time or something like that, that you're going to want to, you're going to want to learn how it's done. So, um, I highly recommend if you're going to go hunt coos deer or Gould's turkeys or even uh, javelina down in Mexico, you might want to just go through it with somebody who has experience before you take the plunge yourself. But regardless, you know, what was your experience going across the border? I mean, I'd done it one other time, but how did you feel about it? I really didn't know what it would be like going across the border and... I couldn't believe how streamlined it was. Ted knew the whole process down to the little things like which lane do you get in? Where do you park? Who do you talk to? What paperwork do they need to see? How do you have, do you want your, your ammo and your rifles in the same box? And this is all stuff again, like you said, you can do on your own, but hunting should ultimately be relaxing and fun. And if you're trying to figure this out on the fly, it can be really hard. And if you screw up, your, your hunt can be blown. You can be in, you can be in trouble, but it's not a hard process. It's not a hard process. I was amazed at how streamlined it was. We had our paperwork in order. Ted took care of everything. He said, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to go to this station and then we're going to go here. And then we need to talk to this person and this is what they're going to want to see and everything. And I, I couldn't believe how quickly we were in Mexico. I was, I was ready to be camped out there for a couple hours, you know, talking to people and, and, showing them passports and everything. And with Ted at the helm, it's, 
it's not an issue. It's very streamlined. Yeah, I, I, it's it's unbelievable um, how smooth it is. And so we cross from Douglas, Arizona, into uh, Awa Prieta. It's pr- it's pronounced that. I, I think I got that pretty close, but the spelling would be A G U A. P-R-I-E-T-A, is that right? I think that's correct, yes. Agua Prieta. Um, so we crossed right there. There are a, a bunch of different entry points that you can get into Sonora to hunt coos deer, but this is the one that we used to get to the ranch that we were heading to. So we crossed the border, about a two-hour drive south to get to Rancho or Rancho Mababi. And let's just, let's just talk about how it was just getting into that ranch. I mean, it's a 45-minute drive through bumpy dirt roads just to get back to that little slice of heaven. Yeah, and the terrain changes totally. When we cross the border, you're talking low, flat country, hot, windy, mesquite, um, just desert. And then we started to, to go to Rancho Mababi, and the terrain started to change. And, yes, once you turn off that paved road, it's a really – it's a long way, and it's a long haul. But what what – that drive does for you is you're getting farther and farther and farther away from, from people. And suddenly you're in a wilderness essentially. And it was just, the country changed the entire way. It became beautiful. I thought it was, I thought it was one of the most beautiful places I'd hunted in North America or anywhere in the world. So if you listen to the previous episode of the hunger podcast, I sat down with Alice Valenzuela, a wife of Roberto Valenzuela and she gave us uh, kind of a, a great snapshot of the unique history of how this ranch got into hunting, how her and Roberto ended up there. Um, it's just a really cool story. And now, fast forwarding to actually getting our boots on the ground there, Brad and I traveled from Douglas, Arizona to Agua Prieta and then south two hours and then west probably about 45 minutes through multiple gates yeah. across uh, really bumpy dirt road. Cause they had had a bunch of water down there recently. So it was, it was pretty gnarly getting in there, but it took us how long to see our first coos deer on the ground? My first morning hunting, we saw our first coos deer within two minutes of leaving camp. But when we, when we got to the ranch, something crazy happened. Um, I don't think any of us were even in our element yet. We, uh-huh. We're still wearing sneakers. Yeah. And next thing you know, we're, we're looking at the very first coos deer we've ever seen. Yeah, that was exceptional. To be driving, we were driving in, and you and I were together. So we drive to the ranch. We're getting our load. You do what you do at any hunting lodge. You're shaking hands. Hi, where's my room? Nice to meet you and all this stuff. And then... Uh, Nick Forsyth, who hunts with Ted, pulls in and says, hey, are you guys going to shoot that deer? <laughs> and I know you and I looked at each other and we said, what deer? What are you, ta- what are you talking about? We're, we're carrying our bags to our room and my rifle was still in a case locked up. And I'm, I'm going, I, I'm, what deer are you talking about? So, yeah, that was pretty, that was, that was a pretty good start, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. So we were driving in, we're in a caravan of three different pickup trucks. We got guys in each vehicle, hunters in each vehicle, and the guys at the back of the line ended up spotting 
a shooter buck, which later me and Brad would find out that finding a shooter buck is uh, a lot more than we bargained for, but it's hunting, it's wildlife, it's the whitetail rut, it's the coos deer rut down in Mexico. Anything can happen at any time. So we're rolling in there, middle of the day, hoping to just get into camp with enough time to double check the zeros on our rifles and get out and maybe do some glassing and find some animals on that first night. But as we're driving in, some of the guys spot a shooter buck on a hot doe right along the road, probably about 150 yards off the road. And so Linda Powell, who does media relations for Mossberg, um, actually, unfortunately, the night before, uh, as we were making our way to Mexico along our travels, uh, middle of the night, she got up out of bed and she stubbed her toe, but she didn't just stub her toe, she broke her toe. So she was suffering in silence. None of us had realized that she'd actually broken her big toe and she was sitting there thinking, how the hell am I gonna get through this week hiking up these hills, going after these deer with a broken toe? Cause she was in pretty much excruciating pain. So the deer gods descended upon us and granted us uh, an easy access deer that Linda was able to go in and take within 15 minutes of when we got to camp. Yeah, my bags weren't even in the room yet. No, we we hadn't. We, we were still saying our hellos and getting just. I don't even think some of us had gone into where we were going to be staying. We're just all getting getting out of the trucks and Nick rolls up and we thought he was joking with us, but no, there sure enough was a, a shooter coos deer, and for there that has to be anything over a hundred inches, and they strive for one hundred and five inches. Boone and Crockett minimum for coos deer is one hundred and ten inches, so they're they're a great quality. Of bucks on this ranch. I think there were two bucks there. There were two good there bucks. There were two bucks. Yes, there were two bucks, both locked on what was probably a hot doe. And so we made our way back down there. Linda Linda put her Mossberg to work. And within 15 minutes of arriving at Mababi, first coos deer was tagged and going to the skinning shed. Yeah, but, I had to unpack my camera and put it together because it, <laughs> it was still packed up and Linda had a deer on the ground. Yeah, it was, it was insane. So Brad and I are thinking, oh man, like this probably yeah. isn't going to be that difficult. This is going to be hard at all. When we actually go where these things are supposed to be, we're going to see them all over the place. And so we went out the first evening and looked for deer, mm-hmm. saw some deer. I actually uh, had some deer come through, had some bucks come through that were in range, but um, I didn't see a single shooter that first evening. How about you? We saw two bucks that were close. And I learned that first evening that a coos deer, coos deer buck weighs 100 pounds. So a 100, 100, 105 inch coos deer looks really big. But we spotted him at 1,200 yards. The sun was going down and there was just no way. There was no way to get to him, no way to get a shot. But we had a really cool experience the first evening. My guy Ron and I were sitting on the ridge and we're, we're skinning for coos deer. And there was a, it was a really steep incline and there was a, a river below us in the canyon with some trees. And I heard a sound that I thought, you know, I've been in, in nature quite a bit. I have a biology background and I thought that sounds like a cat and, and not a bobcat. That sounds like a, like a big cat. And Nick ran over and said, that's a mountain lion. And you could hear what we what we guessed was a, a it was a mountain lion, but we guessed it was a female in heat and she was sort of making this growling sound going down this riverbed, this, um, 
it's a really distinct sound. It's not something that you forget. And, and, uh, Ron actually had on a predator call, he had a, a female mountain lion calling and we heard it and it was the exact same call. And she worked her way all the way down that river and then up into this Canyon right before dark. And that was a pretty, that was a pretty interesting start to the hunt. Yeah. So, so Brad's out there almost getting eaten by mountain lions. I'm out there, um, you know, thinking that this is going to go a lot easier than, than it would because Linda had shot that great deer right away. And, you know, a lot of times for at least for me, you get on a hunt and, you know, you don't really want to, if you're on a seven day hunt or even a three day hunt or a five day hunt, for me, I don't like to just, it's kind of a weird feeling to, to go out there and, you know, possibly take something within the first few hours or even the first right. day. Cause I'm out there for way more than just trying to kill an animal. I'm out there to, to really soak it all in and experience the country and have to work for it and whatnot. Um, but the, the confidence that we got was certainly false from that, from that oh, early yeah. shot that Linda was able to get. For sure. Because we ended up working dark to dark for, well, I, what, what did I shoot my deer on the, the fourth morning or fifth morning? You shut yours on the fourth morning of the hunt, but we'd hunted that half day before. So really it was more than four days of hunting and I shot mine that evening. And there was a lot that happened in between. <laughs> there, there was a ton. It was, it was dark to dark every day, blasting wind. Um, just yeah, what, like Brad said earlier in the podcast, at one point we had snow smacking us in the face or it was like a sort of icy snowy sleet type of deal. And, uh, you know, finding a deer that we wanted to shoot proved to be tremendously difficult. Um, not just, not just finding a deer that we wanted to shoot, but finding deer at all. I mean, yeah. those, I've never seen any species that has a knack for sneaking around and being able to disappear more than a coos deer. But you know they're there. They're there. There are, there are big bucks in virtually every canyon on Mobabi, but it's just, if they want to if they want to bury themselves in thick cover, you're not going to see them. Um, the terrain change was pretty interesting, I thought, because you know, we went from that low country with the with the mesquite to all of a sudden you're in steep steep canyons, you're in tall mountains, um, oak trees, juniper trees, there are a lot of places in in Mababi for deer to hide. They don't have to look. There are open ridges and things like that, but if those deer don't want to be seen, they're not going to be seen, and you have to really, really be patient. Yeah, a, a perfect example of that from this hunt, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the point here in, in regards to my hunt, and I want Brad to to tell his story, but. Um, one afternoon we were out just picking apart the landscape with binoculars and spotting scopes, just hoping to see some bucks chasing does because during the middle of the day, just like any other deer anywhere else, they're most likely going to be bedded down. The difference is with these coos deer versus like a mule deer out west or even, even a whitetail, um, they're going to be bedded in a spot that it's virtually impossible to see them because they're so small and there's so much cover and there are so many little rolls in the terrain that they know exactly where they need to lay down to be able to hide. 
So spotting these deer is tremendously difficult unless unless there's some level of movement. And being being the rut, you were really looking for some chasing activity during the day. So as I'm sitting there scanning the, the mountains and the hills with my guide, Charles Oberly, I saw a buck just come blazing down a hill across from me at about 900 yards. And I watched that buck because when you find one of these animals in your glass, you have to stay on them. And like, if you lose them and you have to, you have to refocus or you take your eyes off your, out of your glass for some reason, or maybe you're going from a, a binocular to a spotting scope, that short amount of time is more than enough for them to completely disappear and you never see yeah. them again. They just, they just vaporize. They do. Um, they call them the, the, the gray ghost of Sonora for a reason. Uh, they've got kind of a grayish color to their hide and it just, it blends in extremely well with most of the vegetation out there. So anyways, I see this buck come blazing down this hill. I keep my eyes on him. He starts chasing a doe. They're running each other around all over the place. And the next thing I know, I see a much bigger buck. And it was the, it was the first buck I had seen on the hunt, aside from the one that Linda had shot. It was the first buck I had seen while out there glassing myself where I knew I was like, okay, I've only seen a handful of coos during my life at this point, but this one is a shooter. I, I could just tell that it was certainly a hundred inches plus. And so I, I looked at Charles, I said, I got a deer over here and I will bet you the meager amount of money in my bank account that this is a shooter. And so he finally laid his eyes on it. We realized it was a shooter. We put together a game plan. We met up with Ted. We went across the ridge. We went into this draw where this deer disappeared. Sure enough, there were, there were a bunch of deer in there. We got on them. We saw a smaller buck. We saw a doe. We are just hoping to see this bigger buck again. And in all the commotion, sure enough, there he was. And I caught a glimpse of him. And Ted caught a glimpse of him. And Charles caught a really good view of him through his binocular because he was behind us about 30 yards and he just happened to have a different vantage point. And so we spent that entire evening trying to find that deer. And at one point, as Ted and I were slowly still hunting around the mountain through some brush and trying to play the wind and just hoping we could find this deer without bumping them, we found the smaller buck that we had originally stumbled across. And he was watching us at 60 yards in this heavy, heavy, thick, nasty mix of timber and brush. And I don't know if it was just the rut or the fact that a lot of these deer have hardly ever seen a human, but we, we stood still. This buck bedded down in front of us and we sat on him for three and a half hours that evening. And Ted was like, if he's, if he's laying here like this, he has to be with that doe. And odds are, if he's with that doe, that other dominant buck that we saw earlier is going to be right in the vicinity. So we rolled the dice. We sat there for three and a half hours until dusk. We started to run out of time. Eventually that got, that buck got up. He moved out. The doe was with him, but the big guy was nowhere to be seen. So we burned our hunt that evening on a gamble that didn't pay off. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the real story of coos deer hunting. You know, we'll, we'll, I know you're going to tell the, the rest of your hunt there, but a gamble that doesn't pay off. How often were, were you laying on a ridge 
half asleep, eating a sandwich, nothing had happened in hours. And then all of a sudden it's time, it's time. We got to go. We got to move. We got to, we're going to bail off this mountain. We're going to run around here. We're going to play the wind getting and All of a sudden you're on this chest burning, leg burning hike run to catch a deer. And then it's back to just waiting. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there, there are, if there are massive periods of lull followed by like these hyper periods of you just gotta, you just gotta move light speed because it's just the way that these animals move around and navigate. They give you very little time. If you spot one to be able to make any sort of move. And it's so easy for them. The way I described it is with the, with the vegetation and these ridges and these draws, it's like a, it's like a giant network of escape routes for them to get out. And all they have to do is duck into one draw and they could go a mile across the ranch through these network of draws and you would never see them because there's just, it's, it's, it looks very scarce while you're out there glassing and walking around. You're like, Oh, there's, there's no way a deer would be able to hide in that. But then when you actually go walk over there and you see what's there, they're like, Oh, well, this is actually like a, a 10 foot little ravine right here. And it'd be extremely easy for this deer to slip around and, and not ever be seen by anything. And that buck knows every one of those in his territory. He knows where they all are. He knows all of them. He knows how the wind direction affects them. He knows it's a blueprint baked into his brain and nobody knows it better than him. So he's, he's got the advantage. doesn't matter. You could be out there with x-ray vision. He's still got the advantage, <laughs> but so Cut to the chase, spent several days glassing, going after deer, rolling dice. Um, every minute counts. So if you make a decision to move on a deer or even just move from one spot to another, you never know what's going to happen. Um, eventually, sometimes you sit on these glassing knobs and, you know, the most productive move might be to just sit there all day because odds are a deer is going to show up if there are other deer in the area, especially does during the rut. They're going to draw in bucks, but it's a mental game too. So like the idea of sitting in one spot and just waiting for action to pick up, it wears on you. So you end up moving around and every time you do so, you're like, oh, maybe we should have just stayed there. Sure. But oh, yeah. you know, you, it's human nature. You gotta, you gotta just try to go be proactive, move around, see what you can see, hopefully find some animals that are on the hoof during the day. And so I did that for, three solid days, dark to dark. And then on the fourth morning, we were going up a ridge right at first light. And sure enough, um, as we're glassing some deer off to the south, I decided to take a look the other way, do a 180. And there were a couple does standing off the side of the road where we were at by some thick brush. And Charles Oberly was sitting here looking at these other deer way off to the south. And I'm like, oh, you know, is there a good buck in there? He's like, no, it's a small buck and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, how about these deer right over here? And we look over and I'm looking at these does. And I actually start photographing them. And he goes, hey, get a picture of that three by two. That's a three by two those guys saw over here yesterday. And it was actually a deer that Brad and some of the other guys had spotted the day before. Or at least Charles thought it was. And so I'm like, well, where is he? He's like. He's right there. And he was standing there in plain sight. For some reason, I just, I didn't notice him. And so I'm getting ready to swing over and take a picture of him. 
And Charles goes, shoot that deer, shoot, shoot that deer, shoot that deer. And it was the first time I had seen Charles get excited in three days. So I knew that it was game on. I looked at the buck, beautiful chocolate antlers, clearly was a tremendous deer. Um, even in my limited three day experience with coos deer, I knew that this deer was one that I needed to shoot. It was a quote unquote shooter. And it was a, it was just a tremendously beautiful buck. At one point he was skylined and it was just a matter of trying to get on him before the deer got too nervous. He was standing behind a, a little patch of brush. His uh, brisket and his neck were exposed in the front. One of the deer, one of the does started to get nervous. And I've never, ever, ever, ever in my 20 some years of deer hunting taken a neck shot. I've never even considered it. But I was confident with my setup. I was, I was stable. One of the does started to get nervous and I just had this feeling like any second now they were just going to pull these oh, yeah. out of there. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to take the shot. And I took the next shot, buck went down, had my first coos deer. And, you know, we went over there to, to look at the deer for the first time. Ted showed up, he joined us in the experience. And honestly, uh, I didn't really expect it, but as I was, looking at this deer and, and Ted was standing over me and um, Charles was running back to the truck to, to grab some stuff. Uh, I got emotional for a second. Sure. Um, it just all kind of hit me. It was delayed, but it all came to, to fruition that, Hey, I had just, I had just done something that was on my bucket list for a long time. And I was hovering over this animal that is one of the most tremendous beasts in North America. And I got to come down here to this beautiful ranch and hunt them and take this great buck off the landscape. And that's not something to take lightly. And it, it really hit me all at that one time. And, um, it was just a, a hell of an experience. And it was even better to be able to go back and cook his front shoulders over a, a natural hardwood charcoal fire, uh, from charcoal that they make on the ranch from oak trees that grow on the ranch same oak trees that drop acorns that those deer are eating sure. that we're hunting. And so it was just a, really a full circle deer, cooked up those shoulders, served it for dinner that night. Everybody seemed to dig it. We enjoyed the fellowship and we told hunt, hunt stories. And uh, we were also fortunate to know that Brad stumbled across the deer that I had not been able to, to find again the previous day. Yeah, first of all, I want to say that that deer shoulder that you cooked was phenomenal. Now, I would eat that every day. That was that was really fantastic. But my hunt was fairly similar. I mean, we we spent the first two days fighting the wind. That wind was brutal, and uh, and when it when it's thirty degrees out and the wind's blowing 20, 30 miles an hour, and you're just sitting still on a ridge top, that's really tough. And it's such beautiful country to glass. That's that's what kept me going. And you've got these these canyons that are full of oak trees and cottonwoods. You've got these juniper forests, uh, yellow grass on these hills. And it's really, it's really beautiful. But the first two days were rough. And my guide, Ron was one of the best. He has some of the best game eyes I've seen anywhere in Africa, North America, anywhere, but he would spot a buck and he would say, and we'd, we'd look at it. No, it wasn't big enough. No, it wasn't big enough. And this went on for two days and that sort of just became the routine. And then, uh, on the third day, we we were 
looking at a ridge and there was an oak tree moving and Ron said, come here, look at this buck. And there was a good buck standing out there. He was silhouetted against the sun. He was raking this, this oak tree with his antlers. And so we made a move. We got down the hill, buck followed a doe. He went down into a canyon. We got set up. It was a tough shot. We had Ocotillo we had to shoot through and finally got set up on him 352 yards or something like that. And Ron called me off. He said, stop, stop, stop. He said, he's only a three by two. So I think that was the buck that you saw. Uh, later that day, we ended up jumping a buck, chased him around a mountain, finally found him. Ron found him. I didn't find him. Um, and he wasn't quite big enough. The following day, Nick Forsyth was hunting with us and he called us on the radio and said, Hey, there's a big buck over here. You need to come look at this, at this deer. He said, I think he's 103, 104. So we went over. So I spotted him on the ridge with the doe. He was doing the same thing, raking, raking his antlers. And it wasn't a spot where he could get very far. There were just a few trees. So we made a wide circle. We dropped off the ridge, came around, went up over top of another ridge, got in position. And we knew he was in these trees and Ron said, well, I'm going to try to find him in here. And I'm thinking, this is impossible. You can't, Ron, you're never going to find this deer. There's no way. It's not a lot of cover, but you're never going to find this, this deer. And I was set up on the rifle. And after 40 minutes, he said, hey, I think I've got the buck. And I moved around him and I found the deer in the scope. And he was, he was under an oak tree. And uh, I said, Ron, is this the buck? I need to know. I need to know if I need to shoot. And he said, okay, well, hold on a second. I'm going to look at his antlers. And right then the buck stood up walked up the hill through the trees where we couldn't see him, crested out, and it was a massive buck. It was certainly a record book buck, 113, 114-inch buck. Went over the hill. We chased him around there. And that was a hard day. That was a lot of running. That was a lot of hiking. We'd done all this, and we hadn't got a deer. But later in that afternoon, we were hunting with Ted, and he spotted a buck. And then he said, it's a four-point, which I knew exactly as soon as he said it's a four-point. I knew exactly which deer it was. It was that, that buck you'd seen. So Ron and I were on a hill. We just climbed up to the top. So you're, you're spent. We run back down. We make a cut for the hill that we think it's on. Start up it. Realize it's the wrong hill. Turn around, run back, climb up this hill. And it was, it, it was a, an experience that I'll never forget because you're climbing this hill and you know, there's a, a big buck on the other side of this hill, but you just, you're gassed. It's all you can do to just get up the hill and you're moving a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. You got your pack on your head. It's heavy. It's hot by that point during the day. We crest this hill. We stay low. Ron glasses. He spots the buck, 180 yards. And, uh, you know, it was an easy shot, but it was an extremely, it was the end of four extremely difficult days of hunting. But that's the payoff. That really is. You you, you forget about the times you think, I'm never going to make it up this mountain when, when that buck goes down. And we got to him and it was funny because Ron took a video as I walked up to the buck and I couldn't breathe, so I couldn't talk. Um, and I, I sat down by the buck and looked at him and he, he was, he was a, it was a great four by, depending on where you're from, four by four, five by five in the East, we'd call it a 10 point buck. He had a kicker. So an 11 point buck, but, and I just said, wow, just, I just could not believe it. And yeah, same way you're overcome. You just can't believe it's over. Uh, the animals are, beautiful. They're fantastic. And believe it or not, we didn't have an easy way out of there. So Ron just took that whole buck and threw it over his shoulders <laughs> and hiked it down the mountain. He said, can you hold my, my, uh, my tripod and binoculars as he's carrying my hundred pound deer on his shoulders? I said, sure, Ron, I'll carry the, yeah, I'll carry the binoculars. And that was the end of my hunt, but what an experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we talked about this the other night, but it really is, um, it's just impossible to put into words. Uh, photos won't do it justice. Video won't do it justice. Um, all the, all the possible ways that you can tell a story like this and share a place like this, you just cannot do it justice. And there are very, I mean, we get to see some cool places. Um, hunters in general get to see some cool places, but you know, a place like this for me, there's just something about it. Um, yeah. the silence that you find out there, it's, it's true solitude. It's true wilderness. Like you said earlier, and it's, it's one of those places, one of those rare places where you can go and you can honestly, you can know for sure that you're going after animals that like you're, you're, there's a good chance you're going to see some animals that have never seen a human being. Yes, that's true. Like there are not very many places left on earth like that where they're, where they're that, uh, that far off the beaten path. And so we can sit here and we can do a podcast about it or we can put out a video and an article and photos and whatnot. But the only way that any of you will be able to be able to understand what it feels like to be in a place like that is to go and just, if you have any interest in deer hunting or just any interest in hunting in general, um, especially big game animals, spot and stalk style, working for it and just, going in for the whole experience. Um, this coos deer hunting is something to behold. It really is. It really is. And it's, and Mababi is a wilderness. And that's what I don't think people appreciate that you're hunting wild deer, big country. And it's no wonder that they're, they're as switched on as they are, because think about the predators that they're dealing with. I mean, that you have on this ranch, you have coyotes, you have a lot of mountain lions. We saw tracks, we saw kills. We heard the lion one night. Um, you have bobcats, but you also have the occasional Mexican gray wolf and jaguar that come through. So there are a lot of animals out there that are that are eating these deer, and, and they thrive. And just to be in an area like that, there are so few places like that left in the world. But to have an opportunity to hunt like that, and it and the thing I loved about it was it was it was quite simply it was how hard are you willing to work for it. You know, the, the deer are there. Are you going to be able to go get them? Are you going to be able to climb this mountain? Are you going to be patient enough to glass this up? Are you going to stay out there when the wind's blowing and the snow's blowing? And I, I will say, when you get your coos deer buck down and you look at him for the first time, it, all that's worthwhile. Every bit of it comes together and it's all worthwhile. It's certainly one of the best hunts I've ever done. And I think if you're a, if you're a North American hunter, coos deer needs to be high on your bucket list. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Hunger Podcast. If you're feeling the hunger to hunt coos deer south of the border, I highly encourage you to connect with Ted Jaycox at talltine.com. Ted will not lead you astray when it comes to a stress-free travel experience and a damn good hunt for the gray ghost. Heck, I might even join you in camp for a few days just to fire up some backstraps on the grill and share a cerveza. Now, before we part ways until next week, please do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and share it with your buddies if you're digging what you hear so far. Adios. Adios.